If you're familiar with the book of 1 Peter, it's a book where Christians were suffering. And the message that's given to them is really just what Angie sang a few moments ago. Uh, God will always be enough. The grace of God will always be sufficient no matter what you're going through. Um, perhaps in your childhood, perhaps in the lives of your children, you've read stories that are known as fairy tales. You know, I heard about a little girl that got into a car one day after school and her, her mom, she's asking her about the day and she said, mom, and the teacher read this story today to us. And she started telling her mom of the story, the fairy tale. And then she, she got to the end of the story and she said, mom, you'll never guess what happened to the man and woman in the story. And her mom said, let me guess. They lived happily ever after. And she said, no, mom, they got married. Fairy tales have a tendency to be knocked to their senses by the sledgehammer of reality. It happens in all different areas. It happens in our work life, our occupation. You hire into that new job and you're so excited about it and the opportunity and you've got a great boss and you start working and in the course of time you find out that he does have an expression other than a smile. You find that there are coworkers some of which are easier to get along with than others. Then you discover that that six-digit salary that they talked about, it included those two decimals to the right of the, of the point. <laughs> we find that reality sets in in our homes. You get married and you're so excited and those, as you start off life together and you kind of come into it and maybe in a little bit of fog... And then you find out that the reality of married life is that there are still cars that need repairs. And there are children who will need braces. There's a house that has a mortgage. You discover that you have a lot of friends named Bill who write to you every month. <laughs> and want more than for just for you to write back. You discover that two can live as cheaply as one, but for only half as long. You discover that Prince Charming and his horse have the same breath in the morning. <laughs> and living is more expensive than you thought. It comes to church. Maybe as a new Christian, you remember when you got into church and God radically changed your life. You got saved and you, you saw these brothers and sisters in Christ and you saw them at their best and thought, this is wonderful. I'm around a bunch of just wonderful people. Then you found out that church people aren't perfect and many times not even close. I, sometime back, I came up with a theory that, how many of you are familiar with Winnie the Pooh and the Hundred Acre Woods? Okay. I just, I came to believe that in any church, the faces may change, the names may be different, but in any church, you can identify all the characters of the Hundred Acre Woods. There's, there's Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh is kind of the soft voice, cuddly, lovable, a little bit naive teddy bear. He's friendly. 
You got Christopher Robin. Christopher Robin is really the voice of reason and the bringer of calm. Whenever everything is chaotic in the woods, when Christopher Robin comes into the mix, there's a calming effect that comes. There's Piglet. He's the timid, shy, kind, gentle. He's a little bit fearful at times. And his, his most well-known phrase is, oh, dear. There's Tigger. Tigger is the happy, bounce off the walls and bounce off people. Less than responsible, full of energy, outgoing, likes to have fun. And he's so overconfident that whatever you want him to do, his response will be, that's what Tiggers do best. Tigger. Churches have all the characters of the hundred acre woods. Rabbit is the organizer. Make the list. Carry it out. Be precise. He can sometimes be the hand wringer. Eeyore is the eternal pessimist. He just, whatever happens, he knows it won't come out right. You can find in the church all those different personalities. And as Peter writes this letter, when he comes to our text today, he's going to turn the attention into the church in the past few weeks as we've started. And as we've been looking through, we have seen how that the grace that God offers, first of all, provides the ability and helps us to hope in time of heaviness. These were Christians who were going through intense persecution. Nero is bringing pressure upon them. Some of them will die as martyrs. There is an intense persecution that is coming. And in the midst of that, Paul, uh, Peter writes to give them hope in time of heaviness. The second thing he gives them, he gives them a command in the middle part of this chapter. To, and he tells them that there's grace to live holy in an unholy world. God's grace can help you to live holy in an unholy world. Can I tell you, we are called to be different. Different from the culture. Now, when you come to the end of the chapter, in the beginning of chapter two, keep in mind, when Peter wrote the book, he didn't put the chapter and verses in there. Y'all knew that, right? Okay. He didn't put those in. But as we come from chapter one, the end of chapter one into chapter two, now he's going to write to them that there is the grace of God that can help us to live in harmony with believers who are human. Grace to live in harmony with believers who are human. The big question comes... How do you live in harmony with believers that you don't necessarily see eye to eye with? How do you live in harmony in a church? Understand, God, Paul likens it to a body where one's a, one's a hand, one's a foot, somebody's an ear, somebody's an eye, somebody's a nose. All these different parts. How do they work together for the glory of God? How do you work and live with those that can be so different from you, but yet you're part of the same body? The grace of God can help you to live in harmony with believers, even when, I'm going to say, we are human. There are four things that Paul gives here, and we're going to start in verse 22, if you have your Bibles open there, to 1 Peter chapter 1. I think the first thing that we have to understand as we look at what Peter wrote if we're going to live in harmony with believers who are human, number one, we must accept our responsibility 
in the family. We must understand and accept our responsibility in the family. Let's start in verse 22 and notice what it says here. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth. Oh, by the way, this is talking about that salvation that's come, the salvation of their souls, their eternal destiny is set. He's writing to believers. He's writing to those in this congregation of believers. He says, seeing you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. The first thing I notice here is he brings into the fact and he reminds them that they're saved. And then he says, you ought to love the brethren and you ought to love them with a fervency. It's worth noting that you'll see in that verse, you see the two words love there? Those are two different Greek words. The first one is that fondness, that family love. It comes from the word we get Philadelphia, the city of Brotherly love. I'm not sure how much Philadelphia is a city of brotherly love now, but that's what it was named as, okay? It's that phileo love, that fondness, that family bond. He says, he deals with that, that unfeigned, that genuine love of family. See that ye love one another. That love is the word agape. That's that deep, abiding, Christ-like love. And so basically he says, as you're brought together in the bond of family, love deeply and fervently and intensely and openly and forever, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what happens, so important. Love the brethren. I don't know about your family background, and I know a, there are people that, perhaps aren't as blessed as I was to grow up in a Christian home. I tell people, my dad was saved as a boy, but he got out and spent some years away from God. When I was two months and 10 days old, my dad went to church and got right with God. And to be honest, I don't remember a whole lot before then. First two months, little, little foggy in my memory, okay? So I grew up in a Christian home, but I know others haven't. One of the things that was instilled in us, and even perhaps sometimes not necessarily just a Christian home, I've seen it in all different family dynamics, a love and loyalty to family. I mean, I've known people that they never darkened the door church. They couldn't even spell church. But I'll tell you this, they had a family loyalty that if you crossed one of them, you'd fight the whole family. There was that bond there. There ought to be a bond in the family of God so that even if, even if sometimes we have to recognize our differences, we still determine that we're going to show Christ-like love to each other. That's the first thing he says. You know how you get along with Christians? Here's a simple statement. You determine to love them anyway. Just love them anyway. Isn't that simple? Love them anyway. And sometimes you'll have to say that. I'm just going to love them anyway. I, I ran across something getting ready for today. And I thought it was interesting. I had never really noticed it and thought about it in the context of this passage. Peter gives a command to love, to love the brethren. He gives a command to love one another. But yet the people he's instructing to do that are people who are suffering. Here's a statement. 
Christian thinking is not thinking of how I should be loved when I am hurting, but how I should love others even when I'm hurting. Isn't that interesting? I never thought about that before. When you read in the Bible over and over, Jesus gave his disciples a command and John records it very much. In John chapter 13, Jesus is getting ready to go to the Garden of Eden, uh, Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Eden is going to shoot him back 4,000 years. To the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's going to be betrayed, arrested, and the next day he's going to be crucified. John 13 takes place in the upper room the night of Jesus' betrayal. It's when he institutes, implements the Lord's Supper. It's his last time with his disciples. In, at the end of John chapter 14, they leave the upper room and they start to the Garden of Gethsemane. When they're in the upper room, you know what Jesus said to them? At this important time, he says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you're, my, that, you're, uh, that you're my disciples, if you love one another. So they're in the upper room. They leave from that room, that place that's been set up, and now they're traveling. You come to John 15. They're making the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus starts by talking about being the vine. But in the middle of that chapter, as he's going through in verse 12, he says, by the way, men, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, why would Jesus repeat it? He says it in the upper room. Now he says it on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Five verses later, he says again, These things I command you, that you love one another. How many of you have figured out sometimes you have to tell people something more than once before they get it? 1 John, John now writes his letter and again, in chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. Verse 11 of chapter 4, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Verses 20 and 21, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brethren, he is a liar. We have to love each other. You know how you get along with believers who are human? Within your family, within your church, within whomever you know. You have to make a decision and understand your responsibility. Love them anyway. Love them anyway. There's a second thing he says. In starting in verse 23, he says, You must rely, we must embrace the reliability of God's word. We must embrace the reliability. Now, now I want you to hear that word. Reliability of God's word. Do you believe we have a reliable Bible? Do you know this Bible is an instruction manual on how to live this life effectively. And it is reliable. Notice what he says in verse 23. Being born again. Now, how are we born again? Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God. And then he says this, which liveth and abideth forever. Which liveth and abideth, for it is reliable. Then he talks about the fact that flesh is as grass 
And all the glory of man as the flower of grass, the grass withereth and the flower fadeth, uh, thereof falleth away. He reminds them, hey, look, we're just like grass. Our lives are going to come to an end. No matter where and how and what we may achieve, in time we will all, with, if God tarries his coming, we will all pillow our heads in death. That's just reality. And then he says this, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. Someone said God buries his workmen, but his work goes on. We as humans will pass from this life, but God's word will stand. Can I tell you this? It is reliable. It is reliable. God's word will always be right. God's word will always be right. How do you, how do you get along with believers who are human? You believe this book, believe it's true, and its instructions are right, and you do what it instructs in your relationships. Isn't that simple? God's word will always be right. I love what one of the Wesleys wrote about the scripture. He said, the, work must be, uh, the Bible must be the work, work of good men or angels, bad men or devils, or of God. It could not be the work of good men or angels, for they would not write a book and tell lies the whole time, saying, thus saith the Lord, when God had not said. It would not be the work of bad men or devils, for they would not write a book that commands all duty, forbids all sin, and condemns them to hell for all eternity. Therefore, I conclude that the Bible must be given by divine inspiration. It is reliable. The third thing I see here, first of all, we have to understand our role. If you're going to go, go through the life with Christians who are going to be human, you must begin by saying, I'm going to just love them anyway because I'm instructed to do that. I'm going to live by the truths and principles of God's word. Number three, we must understand the reality of sinful behavior. Now, after he's talked about the reliability of God's word, you come to chapter two. Notice the very first word, wherefore. That ties him back to what he's just said. By the way, for our folks, last Sunday night, we talked about, remember we talked about indicatives preceding imperatives. He's just given you an indicative, a statement of fact. God's word is reliable. And now he's going to give you an imperative that actually is going to come in verse two. Desire the sincere milk of the word. But he starts it in verse 1 by noticing, and notice, wherefore, laying aside, now look at what he says to lay aside, all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and evil speakings. I don't know about you, but I read that and go, whoa, that's a pretty bad list. And then I think, you know who he's writing to? He's writing to the church. Now, wait a minute. Oh, 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 just a moment. Malice, that's a general term for wrong behavior. Guile, that has the idea of deceit in it, deceitfulness. Hypocrisies, that's pretending to be something that we're not. That envies, 
That's a, a, a viciousness or a vindictiveness toward another individual. Evil speakings. Many times envy leads to evil speaking. We can't stand for maybe someone else to get glory. And if someone says something, we may respond by saying, hey, yeah, but you know this about that person? That's what he's talking about here. And you go, wait a minute. In the church. In the church. Now, I know some people think, why couldn't we just go back and be like the church of the first century? They were all such great Christians. Uh, let's think that through just a moment. Let's see. Acts 5. Acts 4. You have Joseph, whose surname is Barnabas, makes a nice gift to the church and everybody desires, thanks him, and they're grateful for him. You come to chapter 5, and there's a family in the church, a husband and wife in the church, and they, they're bothered that he's getting a lot of attention. So they concoct this plan where they sell this piece of property. Remember the story? And they bring part of the money, but pretend that it's all of the money, and God brings judgment and strikes them dead. Remember that? So I guess... It was a problem in the first century all the way through until today. We still have to understand. Say, preacher, why do, I, why do you tell me this? God's people will always be a work in progress. In any church, they will always be. Listen to this. Don't be surprised, dismayed, or become disillusioned when you find sinful behavior in the church. Now that doesn't justify it. But if we can understand it's a reality because we're in the growth process. I told you, my dad got right with God through the preaching of a man. There was an influence of a testimony of a man at work. My dad went to church. The man that preached the Sunday, my dad walked the aisle and got right with God and our whole family changed. The man that preached that day, and he was a great preacher. I can remember going and hearing him preach in tent meetings, and, and he was a great preacher. He spent 20 years out of the ministry. He spent 20 years not preaching. You know why? He began to take some hits, take some wounds. He let it get him discouraged. He let it get him dismayed. And before it was over with, he was out of the ministry. The church I grew up in, we had a, had a man in the church that went to prison for deceiving people on an investment scheme. You say, wait a minute, Christian people will do that? The truth is, it'll happen sometimes. I don't tell you that to discourage you. I tell you that to understand. If you're going to understand and get along with Christians who are human, we have to understand that sometimes there's going to be sinful behavior. You may not always know why. Maybe they're weary. Maybe they're stressed. Maybe they're hurt. Maybe they're bitter over something that's happened. We must understand that we're all growing and someone else's weakness or their area might not be the same of mine, but we're all still a work in progress. And if we want them to tolerate us, we ought to be able to tolerate them. That's how you get along with Christians who are believers who are human. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked by it. It's always been so. That doesn't justify it. But it does mean that sometimes we have to say, you know what? God's word's still right. The church is still good. 
God still wants to use the church to do something. We're all fleshly. We're all still a work in progress. We're going to let God bind our hearts together, strengths and weaknesses. Number four, the fourth thing that you get here. How do you get along with Christians who are believers who are human? We must desire the remedy that God offers. We must desire. Now, here's your imperative that follows your indicative of the last chapter. At the end of chapter three, the fact is stated. The word of God is reliable. Amen. Amen. Now in verse two, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. It's interesting. He used the analogy of a baby. Uh, how many of you have had small children at some point in your married scenario? Okay. What does a baby do when they want milk? They cry. They cry. Why? Number one, that's the only way they can communicate. But number two, they really want what they want. They're craving something and they're going to cry until you get it. And one of the amazing things, I'm sorry, how many of you are grandparents? When I became a grandparent, I had to deal with the reality that grandchildren still have a sin nature. Now, how many of you just got shocked by that? We've been on the phone a couple times talking with our daughter-in-law, our son, and had our little grandson, Callan, on the phone. And a couple of times this has happened where Garrett or Whitney has said this, Pop and Nani, we're going to have to call you back in a minute. We need to deal with some sin in Callan's heart. <laughs> Callan is three. But they're dealing with sin in Callan's heart. The idea here that as newborn babes, it's that, that you, you, you crave something. There's an urge. What are you craving? The milk of the word. By the way, that sincere means uncontaminated. It's interesting that actually the word here for sincere is the same word with the A put on it that makes it opposite that was used for deceit back in verse 1. As opposed to deceitful, desire the reliable, the pure, the uncontaminated word of God. Why? That ye may grow thereby. The only cure for carnality, listen this closely, the only cure for carnality is a consistent diet of God's word. Can I say this? If the only time you hear or read or study God's word is when you come to this place to worship or Clio Avenue to worship, if that's the only time that you look into this word, you'll not become a mature believer. Amen. That you may grow thereby. We must desire the remedy that God offers. Through His Word, He says, you know what I can do? I can make a difference in your life. 
I've shared this before. Our folks have heard it. They can hear it again. I was helping. I was counseling a young man and woman who were having some issues in their marriage. And I started challenging him about reading his Bible every day. And when I challenged him, I challenged him. I said, well, let's start simple. Read the chapter in Proverbs that corresponds to the day of the month. So on the first day of the month, you read Proverbs 1. On the seventh day, you read Proverbs 7. Just read that chapter in Proverbs. Just trying to get him to each day read his Bible. We were playing church softball. We were, we were playing a game and he was warming up. He was playing a game. We were warming up for the game. We were outside the fence where he was playing. He comes running over the fence as he comes out to the field and says, Preacher, I need to talk to you. I said, okay. He said, I, I blew it today. We're kind of carrying on this conversation. And when he starts telling me, he kind of, he lost his cool and raised his volume with his wife that day. I'm sure, is there anyone here that can identify with that? I said, did you have your devotions this morning? He said, yeah. I said, what, you read Proverbs 15, right? I still remember, it's the 15th day of the month because I remember what he read. I said, what does verse 1 say? A soft answer turneth away wrath. You know what will allow you to be a more mature Christian is when you begin to take this book and it becomes a regular part of your diet and you get to the point where you begin to crave it. You begin to desire it. When you miss it, it's like there's something missing. That is what will begin to change carnality to spirituality. And the truth is, the work of the grace of God can make all of us become, help all of us to become more like Christ. Grace to live in harmony with believers who are human. I want to close with one thought I want you to take with you. We're commanded to show other, grace to others like God showed grace to us. There's a story that's recorded in, and I hesitate even to use the author's name, but it's Max Licato in the book, No Wonder They Call Him the Savior. And he gives this story, allegedly as a true story. There's a young lady named Christina. She lived in a poor Brazilian neighborhood. She slept on a mat on a hard floor. She washed in a wash basin and they cooked with a wood-burning stove. She dreamed of a better life and dreamed of the offers of the big city. Finally, in the early mornings one day, she slipped away, hopped a bus, and made her way to Rio de Janeiro. Her mom woke up that morning to discover that she was gone. She knew what her daughter was facing in the decision that she had made. As quickly as she could get her little belongings together, she made her way to the bus stop to take a bus to also go and look for her daughter in that massive city. She made one stop on the way, though. She stopped at a pharmacy, and she stepped into a booth, and she took all the money that she could spare and made picture after picture after picture after picture of herself. She got on the bus. 
she went to town. She wrote a note on the back of each picture. She went every place that a young lady would go when she was in desperate need in a city. The place where the life was more at night than in the day. And in motel rooms and in public restrooms and even on phone booths, she would stick that picture and just put it around. In time, her money ran out and she had heartbroken to turn and go home, having not found her daughter. She went home and a few weeks later, Christina came down the stairwells of a hotel the laughter and brightness of her eyes was no longer there. There was a dark shadow in her life. And she found herself longing for that pallet on that hard floor over what she had become in her attempt to run. As she came down the steps on a bulletin board, she saw a picture. It was a picture of her mom. She went over and took the picture off the bulletin board. And she turned it over. And here's what was written on the back. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And the story ends by saying, she did. You know what? Isn't that the message of God's grace? Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, just come to me. And if God can forgive us for that, we should be able to forgive each other for some of our areas of, of weakness. Don't you think? Maybe there's somebody in the church that you've been holding some grudge or bitterness against. You know the greatest thing you could do? Go to that person. Say, I want you to know I've been harboring something, but I want to ask you to forgive me. And by God's grace, be united. Maybe there's someone that's not around anymore that you've still got a bitterness against. You deal with it. You know why? The reliability of God's Word says to do it. And the God's Word is what we grow by. And we must develop a diet and use it for our decisions, for our principles, for our character. I trust you will.